0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves and the Tie that Binds. Volume 5 Chapter 12 My aunt's departure, at I should estimate some 60 mpH, left behind it the sort of quivering stillness you get during hurricane time in America, when the howling gale having shaken you to the back teeth passes on to tickle-up residences in spots farther west. Kind of a dazed feeling it gives you. I turned to Jeeves and found him, of course, as serene and unmoved as an oyster in a half-shell. He might have been watching yowling odds shoot out of rooms like bullets from early childhood. What was that she said, Jeeves? Yoikes, sir, if I am not mistaken. Seems to me that Madame also added, Tally-ho, gone away. "'and hard-forward.' "'I suppose members of the court in Pitchley "'are saying that sort of thing all the time.' "'So I understand, sir. "'It encourages the hounds to renewed efforts. "'It must, of course, be trying for the fox.' "'I'd hate to be the fox, wouldn't you, Jeeves?' "'Certainly I can imagine more agreeable existences, sir.' "'Not only being chivied for miles across difficult country, "'but also having to listen to men in top-hats,' uttering those uncouth cries. Precisely, sir. A very wearing life. I produced my cambric handkerchief and gave the brow a mop. Recent events had caused me to perspire in the manners popularised by the fountains of Versailles. Warm work, Jeeves. Yes, sir. Opens the paws a bit. Yes, sir. How quiet everything seems now. Yes, sir. Silence like a poultice comes to heal the blows of sound. Shakespeare? No, sir, the American author Oliver Wendell Holmes. His poem The Organ Grinders. An aunt of mine used to read it to me as a child. I didn't know you had any aunts. Three, sir. Are they as jumpy as the one who has just left us? No, sir, their outlook on life is uniformly placid. I'd begun to feel a bit more placid myself. Calmer, if you know what I mean. And with the calm had come more charitable thoughts. And I don't blame the aged relative for being jumpy. She's all tied up with an enterprise of pith and something. Of great pith and moment, sir. That's right. Let us hope that its currents will not turn awry and lose the name of action. Yes, let's. Turn what? Awry, sir. "'Don't you mean Agley?' "'No, sir.' "'Then it isn't the poet Burns?' "'No, sir. The words occur in Shakespeare's drama Hamlet.' "'Oh, I know Hamlet. Aunt Agatha once made me take her son, Thomas, to the old Vic. "'Not a bad show. I thought it a bit highbrow, though. "'You're sure the poet Burns didn't write it?' "'Yes, sir. The fact, I understand, is well established.' Then that settles that?' But we have wandered from the point, which was that Aunt Dahlia is up to her neck in this enterprise of great pith and moment. It's about Tuppy Glossop. Indeed, sir. It ought to interest you, because I know you've always liked Tuppy. A very pleasant young gentleman, sir. is it, looping back the last ring over the drone swimming pool, yes. Well, it's too long a story to tell you at the moment, but the gist of it is this. L.P. Rincol taking advantage of a legal quibble. Quibble. Is it Quibble? Yes, sir. Did down Tuppy's father of a business deal? Well, not exactly a business deal. Tuppy's father was working for him, and he took advantage of the small print in their contract to rob him of the proceeds of something he had invented. It is often that way, sir. The financier is apt to prosper at the expense of the inventor. And Aunt Dahlia is hoping to get him to cough up a bit of cash and slip it to Tuppy. Actuated by remorse, sir? Not just remorse. She's relying more on the fact that for quite a time he has been under the spell of Anatole's cooking, and she feels that this will have made him a softer and kinder financier, readier to oblige and do the square thing. You look dubious, Jeeves. Don't you think it'll work? She's sure it will. I wish I could share Madame's confidence, but... But, like me, you look on her chance of playing on L. P. Runcall, as on a stringed instrument as as what? a hundred to eight shot? A somewhat longer price than that, sir. We have to take into consideration the fact that Mr. Runcall is. Yes, you hesitate, Jeez. Mr. Runcall is what? The expression I am trying to find eludes me, sir. It is one I have sometimes heard you use to indicate. "'a deficiency of sweetness and light in some gentleman of your acquaintance. "'You have employed it to Mr Spode, or, should I say, Lord Sidcup, "'and in the days before your association with him on the present cordiality "'of Mr Glossop's uncle, Sir Broderick. "'It is on the tip of my tongue.' "'A stinker?' "'No, sir. It was not a stinker.' "'A tough baby?' "'No, sir.' "'A twenty-minute egg?' That is it, sir. mr Runkle is a twenty minute egg. But have you seen him enough to judge, after all? You only just met him. Yes, sir, that is true; but Bingley, on learning he was a guest of Madame's, told me a number of stories illustrative of his hard hearted and implacable character. Bingley was at one time in his employ. Good Lord! he seems to have been employed by everyone! Yes, sir, he was inclined to flit. He never remained in one post for long. I don't wonder. But his relationship with Mr. Karl was of a more extended duration. He accompanied him to the United States of America some years ago and remained with him for several months. During which period he found him a twenty-minute egg? Precisely, sir, so I very much fear that Madame's efforts will produce no satisfactory results. Would it be a large sum of money that she is hoping to persuade Mr. Roncall to part with? "'Pretty substantial, I gather. You see, what Tuppy's father invented were those magic midget things, and Roncall must have made a packet out of them. I suppose she aims for a fifty-fifty split.' then I am forced to the opinion that a hundred to one against is more the figure a level-headed turf accountant would place upon the likelihood of her achieving her objective. Not encouraging, you'll agree. In fact, you might describe it as definitely damping. I would have called him a pessimist, only I couldn't think of the word at the time. And when I was trying to hit on something other than a gloomy guss, which would hardly have been a fitting way to address one of his dignity... Florence came in through the French window, and he, of course, shimmered off. When our conversations are interrupted by the arrival of what you might call the quality, he always disappears like a family specter vanishing at dawn. Except at meals, I hadn't seen anything of Florence till now. She was, so to speak, having taken the high road while I took the low road. What I mean to say is she was always at Market Snodsbury, bustling about on behalf of the conservative candidate to whom she was betrothed. While I, after the nerve-wracking encounter with the widow of the late McCorkendale, had given up canvassing in favour of curling up with a good book, i had apologised to Ginger for this pusillanimity, is that the word? And he had taken it extraordinarily well, telling me it was perfectly all right, and he wished he could do the same. She was looking as beautiful as ever, if not more so, and at least 96% of the members of the Drones Club would have liked nothing better than to be closeted with her like this. I, however, would willingly have avoided the tete-a-tete for my trained senses told me she was in one of her tempers and when this happens the instinct of all but the hardiest is to climb a tree and pull it up after them. The overbearing dishpotness to which I alluded earlier and which is so marked of a feature of her make-up was plainly to the fore. She said, speaking abruptly, What are you doing here on a lovely day like this, Bertie? I explained I had been in conference with Aunt Dahlia, and she reciprocated that the conference was presumably over by now, Aunt D being conspicuous by her absence, so why wasn't I out getting fresh air and sunshine? You're much too fond of frowsting indoors, Bertie. That's why you have that sallow look. I didn't know I had a sallow look. Of course you have a sallow look, Bertie. What else did you expect? You look like the underside of a dead fish. My worst fears seemed to have been confirmed. I had anticipated she would work off her collar on the first innocent bystander she met, and it was just my luck that this happened to be me. With bowed head, I prepared to face the storm, and then to no my surprise, she changed the subject. I'm looking for Harold. Oh? Have you seen him? I don't think I know him. Don't be an idiot, Bertie. Harold Winship. Oh, Ginger! Yes! No, he hasn't swum into my ken. What do you want to see him about? Something important? It is important to me, and it ought to be to him. Unless he takes himself in hand, he is going to lose the selection. What makes you think that? His behaviour at lunch today. Oh! Did he take you to lunch? Where did you go? I had mine at a pub, and the garbage there had to be chewed to be believed. But perhaps you went to a decent hotel. It was the Chamber of Commerce luncheon at the Town Hall, a vitally important occasion, and he made the feeblest speech I have ever heard. A child with water on the brain could have done better. Even you could have done better, Bertie. Well, I suppose placing me on a level of efficiency with a water-on-the-brain child was quite a stately compliment coming from Florence, so I didn't go further into the matter, and she carried on puffs of flame emerging from both nostrils. Err, 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 err! I beg your pardon? He kept saying err, err, err. I could have thrown a coffee spoon at him. Here, of course, was my chance to work in the old gag about to err being human, but I didn't think about it at the moment. Instead, I said, he was probably nervous. That was his excuse. I told him he had no right to be nervous then you've seen him I saw him after lunch immediately after lunch but you want to see him again yes I do I'll go and look for him shall I yes and tell him to meet me in mr. Travers's study we shall not be interrupted there he's probably sitting in the summer house by the lake well tell him to stop sitting and come to the study she said for all the world as if she had been Aunt Abney announcing that he would like to see Worcester after morning prayers. Quite took me back to the old days. To get to the summer house, you have to go across the lawn. The one Spode was toying with the idea of buttering me over. And the first thing I saw, as I did so, apart from the birds, bees, butterflies and what not, which put in their leisure hours there, was L.P. Roncall lying in the hammock, wrapped in slumber, with Aunt Dahlia in a chair at his side. When she sighted me, she rose and headed in my direction and drew me away a yard or two, at the same time putting a finger to her lips. He's asleep, she said. A snore from the hammock bore out the truth of this, and I said I could see he was, and what a revolting spectacle he presented. And she told me for heaven's sake not to bellow like that. Somewhat piqued at being accused of bellowing by a woman, whose lightest whisper was like someone calling the cattle home from across the sands of Dee, I said I wasn't bellowing, and she said, Well, don't! He may be in a nasty mood if he's woken suddenly. It was an astute piece of reasoning, speaking well for her grasp of strategy and tactics, but with my quick intelligence I spotted a flaw in it which I proceeded to call her attention to. On the other hand, if you don't wake him up, how can you plead Tuppy's case? I said suddenly, you ass! It will be all right if I let nature take its course. Yes, you made a point there. Will nature be long about it, do you think? How am I supposed to know? I was only wondering. You can't sit there the rest of the afternoon. I can if necessary. Well, then I'll leave you to it. I'm going to go and look for Ginger. Have you seen him? He came by just now with his secretary on the way to the summer house. He told me he had some dictation to do. Why do you want him? I didn't particularly, though always glad of his company. Florence told me to find him. She's been giving him hell and is anxious to give him some more, apparently. Here she interrupted me with a sharp hissed, for L.P. Runkal had stirred in his sleep and it looked as if life was returning to his inert frame. But it proved to be a false alarm, and I resume my remarks. Apparently, he failed to wow the customers at the Chamber of Commerce lunch, where she was counting on him being a regular... Oh, who is the Greek chap? Bertie, if I wasn't afraid of waking room call, I'd strike you with a blunt instrument. If I had a blunt instrument. What Greek chap? That's what I'm asking you. He chewed on pebbles. Do you mean to master these? Oh, you may be right. I'll take it up later with Jeeves. Florence was expecting Ginger to be a regular Demosthenes, if that's the name, which seems unlikely, though I was at school with a fellow named Gia and he let her down, and this annoyed her. You know how she speaks her mind when annoyed. She speaks her mind much too much, said the relative severely. I wonder how Ginger stands it so happened I was in a position to solve the problem that was perplexing her. The facts governing the relationship of guys and dolls had long been an open book to me. I had given deep thought to the matter, and when I give deep thought to a matter, perplexities are speedily ironed out. He stands at aged relative, because he loves her. And you wouldn't be far wrong in saying that love conquers all. I know what you mean, of course. It surprises you that a fellow of his thews and sinews should curl up in a ball when she looks squiggle-eyed at him and receive her strictures, if that's the word I want, with the meekness of a spaniel rebuked for bringing a decayed bone to the home. What you overlook is the fact that, in the matter of finely chiseled profile, willowy figure and platinum blonde hair, she is well up among the top ten, and these things weigh heavily with a man like Ginger. You and I, regarding Florence coolly, pencil her in as a bossy, human consumption. But he gets a different slant. It's the old business of what Jeeves calls the psychology of the individual. Very possibly, the seeds of rebellion start to seethe within him when she speaks her mind, but he catches sight of her sideways or gets a glimpse of her hair, assuming for purposes of argument that she's not wearing a hat, or he notices once again that she has as many curves as a scenic railway, and he feels that it's worth putting up with a spot of mind-speaking in order to make her his own. His love, you see, is not wholly spiritual. There's a bit of the carnal mixed up in it. I would have spoken further, for the subject was one that always calls out the best in me, but at this point the old ancestor, who had been fidgeting for some time, asked me to go and drown myself in the lake. I buzzed off accordingly, and she returned to her chair beside the hammock, brooding over L.P. Runcar like a mother over her sleeping child. I don't suppose she'd observed it, for aunts seldom give much attention to the play of expression on the faces of their nephews. But all through these exchanges I had been looking grave, making it pretty obvious that there was something on my mind. I was thinking of what Jeeves had said about the one hundred to one which a level-headed bookie would wager against her chance of extracting money from a man so liberally equipped with one-way pockets as L.P. Runcal. And it pained me deeply to picture her dismay And disappointment when, waking from his slumbers, he refused to disgorge. It would be a blow calculated to take all the stuffing out of her. She'd been so convinced that she was on to a sure thing. I was also, of course, greatly concerned about Ginger, having been engaged to Florence myself. I knew what she could do in the way of ticking off the errant mail, and the symptoms seemed to point to the probability that on the present occasion she would eclipse all previous performances. I had not failed to interpret the significance of that dark frown, that bitten lip and those flashing eyes, nor the way the willowy figure had quivered, indicating she had caught a chill, that she was as sore as a sunburned neck. I marvelled at the depths to which my old friend must have sunk as an orator in order to get such stark emotions underway, and I intended, delicately of course, to question him about this. I had, however, no opportunity to do so, For on entering the summer-house, the first thing I saw was him and Magnolia Glendennen locked in an embrace so close that it seemed to me that only powerful machinery could unglue them. Chapter 13 In taking this view, however, I was in error, for scarcely had I uttered the first yip of astonishment, when this Glendennen popsy, echoing it with the yip of her own, such as might have proceeded from a nymph, surprised while bathing, disentangled herself, and came whizzing past me, disappearing into the great world outside, at a speed which put her in the old ancestor's class as a sprinter on the flat. It was as though she had said, Oh, for the wings of a dove, and had gotten them. I, meanwhile, stood rooted to the S, mouth slightly ajar, and eyes bulging to their fullest extent. What's that word, beginning with a dis... disembodied? No, not disembodied. D- distemper? No, not distemper. Disconcerted, that's the one. I was disconcerted. I should imagine that if you happened to wander by accident into the steam room of a Turkish bath on ladies' night, you would have emotions very similar to those I was experiencing now. Ginger, too, seemed not altogether at his case. Indeed, I would describe him as definitely taken aback. He breathed heavily, as if suffering from asthma. The eye with which he regarded me contained practically none of the chumminess you would expect to see in the eye of an old friend. And his voice when he spoke resembled that of an annoyed cinnamon bear, throaty, if you know what I mean, and on the peevish side. His opening words consisted of a well-phrased critique of my tactlessness in selecting that particular moment for entering the summer house. He wished, he said, that I wouldn't creep around like a ruddy private eye. "'Had I,' he asked, "'got my magnifying glass with me, "'and did I propose to go round on all fours, "'picking up small objects and putting them away carefully in an envelope? "'What,' he inquired, "'was I doing here anyway?' "'To this I might have replied that I was perfectly entitled "'at all times to enter a summer-house "'which was the property of my Aunt Dahlia, "'and so related to me by ties of blood, "'but something told me that suavity would be the better policy.' In rebuttal, therefore, I merely said I wasn't creeping about like a ruddy private eye, but navigating with a firm and manly stride, and had simply been looking for him because Florence had ordered me to, and I had learned from a usually well-informed source that this was where he was. My reasoning had the soothing effect I had hoped. His manner changed, losing its cinnamon bear quality, and taking on a welcome all-pals-togetherness. It bore out what I've always said— that there's nothing like suavity for pouring oil on the troubled waters when he spoke again it was plain he regarded me as a friend and an ally i suppose all this seems a bit odd to you bertie not at all old man not at all but there is a simple explanation i i love magnolia i thought you loved florence so i did but you know how apt one is to make mistakes of course When you're looking for the ideal girl, I mean. Oh, quite. I dare say you've had the same experience yourself. Oh, from time to time. Happens to everybody, I expect. I shouldn't wonder. Where one goes wrong when looking for the ideal girl is in making one selection before walking the full length of the counter, you see. You meet someone with a perfect profile, platinum blonde, willoughby figure, and you think your search is over. Uh, Bingo, you say to yourself, this is the one, except no substitutes, little knowing that you are linking your lot with that of a female sergeant-major with strong views on the subject of discipline. And that if you'd only gone a bit further, you would have found the sweetest, kindest, gentlest girl that ever took down outgoing mail in shorthand, who would love you and cherish you and would never dream of giving you hell, no matter what the circumstances. I allude, of course, to Magnolia Glendanen. I thought you did. I can't tell you how I feel about her, Bertie. Don't try.' Ever since we came down here, I've had a lurking suspicion that she was the mate for me, and that in signing on the dotted line with Florence, I had made a boner of a lifetime. Just now, my last doubts were dispelled. Why? What happened? She rubbed the back of my neck. My interview with Florence, coming on top of that ghastly Chamber of Commerce lunch, had given me a splitting headache. And she rubbed the back of my neck. "'and then I knew, as those soft fingers touched my skin "'like dainty butterflies hovering over a flower that—' "'Right-ho!' "'It was a revelation, Bertie. "'I knew I had come to journey's end, "'and I said to myself, "'This is a good thing. Push it along.' "'I turned, and I grasped her hand, "'and I gazed into her eyes, and she gazed into mine. "'I told her I loved her, and she said so she did me. "'I fell into her arms, and I grabbed her— and we stood murmuring endearments, and for a while everything was fine. It couldn't have been better, and then a thought struck me. There was a snag, of course, and you probably spotted it. Florence! Exactly. Bossy though she is, plain spoken though she may be when anything displeases her, and I wish you could have heard her after that Chamber of Commerce lunch. I, I am still engaged to her.' "'And while girls can break engagements till the cows come home, men can't.' "'I found his train of thought. "'It was evident that he, like me, aimed at being a chevalier, "'and you simply can't be a chevalier or anything like it "'if you go about the place, getting betrothed, "'and then telling the party of the second part it's all off. "'Seemed to me that the snag which had raised its ugly head "'was one that was formidable, you might say, of king-sized dimensions.' "'well calculated to make the current of whatever he proposed to do about it "'turn awry and lose the name of action. "'But when I put this to him with a sympathetic tremor in my voice, "'and I'm not sure I didn't clasp his hand, "'he surprised me by chuckling like a leaky radiator. "'That's all right,' he said. "'I would admit it appears to be a tricky situation, but I can handle it. "'I'm going to get Florence to break the engagement.' He spoke with such a gay, confident ring to his voice. So like the old ancestor predicting what she was going to do to L.P. Rancall in the playing-on-a-stringed-instrument line, that I was loath, if that's the word I want, to say anything to depress him. But the question had to be asked. How? I said, asking it. Quite simple. We agreed, I think, that she has no use for a loser. I'm simply going to lose the election. Well, it was a thought, of course, and I was in complete agreement with him on his supposition that if the McCorkendale nosed ahead of him in the voting, Florence would in all probability hand him the pink slip, but where it seemed to me that the current went awry was that he had no means of knowing that the electorate would put him in the second place. Of course, voters are like aunts, you never know what they'll be up to from one day to the next, but it was a thing you couldn't count on. I mentioned this to him, and he repeated his impersonation of a leaky radiator. Don't worry, Bertie. I have the situation well in hand. Something happened in a dark corner of the town hall after lunch that justifies my confidence. What? What happened in a dark corner in the town hall after lunch? Well, the first thing that happened after lunch was that Florence got hold of me and became extremely personal. It was then I realised that it would be the act of a fathead to marry her. I nodded adhesion to this sentiment. That time when she broke her engagement with me, my spirits had soared and I had gone about singing like a relieved nightingale. One thing rather puzzled me and seemed to call for explanatory notes. Why did Florence draw you into a dark corner when planning to become personal, I asked. I wouldn't have credited her with so much tact and consideration. As a rule, when she's telling people what she thinks of them, an audience seems to stimulate her. I recall one occasion when she'd ticked me off in the presence of seventeen girl guides, all listening with their ears flapping, and she had never spoken more fluently. He put me straight on the point I had raised. He said he had misled me. It wasn't Florence who drew me into the dark corner. It was Bingley. Bingley? A fellow who once worked for me. He worked for me once, too. Really? Small world, isn't it? "'Pretty small. Did you know he'd come into money?' "'He'll soon be coming into some more.' "'But you were saying he drew you into a dark corner. Why'd he do that?' "'Because he had a proposition to make me which demanded privacy. "'He... But before going on, I must lay a proper foundation. "'You know, in those Perry Mason stories, how whenever Perry says anything while cross-examining a witness, "'the district attorney jumps up and yells, "'Objection, Your honor." The S.O.P. has laid no proper foundation. Well, then, you must know that this man, Bingley, belongs to a butlers and valet club in London called the Junior Ganymede. And one of the rules there is that members have to record the doings of their employers in the club book. I would have told him I knew all too well about that, but he carried on before I could speak. Such a book, as you can imagine, contains a lot of damaging stuff, and he told me he had been obliged to contribute several pages about me, which, if revealed, would lose so many votes that the election would be a gift to my opponent. He added that some men in my place would have sold it to the opposition and made a lot of money, but he wouldn't do such a thing, because it would be low, and in the short time we were together he had come to have a great affection for me. I never realised before what an extraordinarily good chap he was. I'd always thought him a bit of a squirt. Shares how wrong you could be about people.' Again, I would have spoken, but he rolled over me like a tidal wave. I should have explained that the committee of the Junga Ganymede, recognising the importance of the book, had entrusted it to him with instructions to guard it with his life, and his constant fear was that bad men would get wind of this and try to steal it. So what would remove a great burden from his mind, he said, would be if I took it into my possession. Then I could be sure its contents wouldn't be used against me. I could return it to him after the election and slip him a few quid, if I wished, as a token of my gratitude. You can picture me smiling my subtle smile as he said this. He knew little that my first act would be to send the thing by messenger to the offices of the Market nalsbury argus Intelligencer, thereby handing the election on a plate to the McCorkendale and enabling me to free myself from my honourable obligations to Florence, who would, of course, on reading the stuff, recoil from me in horror. Do you know the Argus Intelligencer, very far to the left, can't stand conservatives? It had a cartoon of me last week, showing me with my hands dripping with the blood of the martyred proletariat. I don't know where they get these ideas. I've never spilt a drop of anyone's blood except when boxing, and then the other chap was spilling mine as well. Wholesome give and take, so to speak. So it wasn't long before Bingley and I had everything all fixed up. He couldn't give me the book then as he had left it at home, and he wouldn't come and have a drink with me because he had to hurry back because he thought Jeeves might be calling and he didn't want to miss him. Apparently Jeeves is an old pal of his, old club crony, that sort of thing, we're meeting tomorrow, and I shall reward him with a purse of gold, and he'll give me the book, and five minutes later, if I can find some brown paper and string, it'll be on its way to the Argus Intelligencer. The material shall be in print the day after tomorrow. Allow an hour or so for Florence to get hold of a copy and say twenty minutes for a chat with her after she's read it, and I ought to be a free man well after lunch. About how much gold do you think I should reward Bingley with?' "'Figures were not named, but I thought at least a hundred quid, "'because he certainly deserves something substantial for his scrupulous high-mindedness. "'As I said, some men in his place would have sold the book to the opposition and cleaned up big.' "'By what I've always thought, an odd coincidence, he paused at this "'and asked me why I was looking like something the cat brought in, "'precisely as the aged relative had asked me after my interview with Mama Corkindale.' I don't know what cats bring into houses, but one assumes that it is something not very jaunty, and apparently, when in the grip of any strong emotion, I resemble their treasure trove. I could well understand that I was looking like that now. I find it distasteful to have to shatter a long-time buddy's hopes and dreams, and no doubt this shows on the surface. There was no sense in beating about bushes. It was another of those cases of, if it were done, then twould done quickly." Ginger, I'm afraid I have a bit of bad news for you. That book is no longer among those present. Jeeves called on Bingley, gave him a Mickey Finn, and got it away from him. He now has it in his archives. He didn't get it at first, and I had to explain. Bingley is not the man of integrity you think him to be. He's on the contrary, a louse of the first water. You might describe him as a slimy, slinking slug. He pinched that book from the junior Ganymede, and tried to sell it to Mama Corkendale. She sent him away with a flea in his ear because she's a fair fighter, and he tried to sell it to you. But meanwhile, Jeeves nipped in and obtained it. It took him maybe a minute to absorb this, but to my surprise he wasn't a bit upset. Well then, he said, it's all right then, Jeeves can take it to the Argus Intelligencer. I shook the lobe sadly, for I knew that this time those hopes and dreams of his were really due for a sock in the eye he wouldn't do it ginger to jeeves that club book is sacred i've gone after him a dozen times urging him to destroy the pages concerning me but he always remains as uncooperative as bollum's ass who as you may remember dug his feet in and refused to play ball he'll never let it out of his hands he took it as i had foreseen big he spluttered a good deal He also kicked the table and would have splitted it if it hadn't been made of marble. It must have hurt like sin, but what disturbed him, I deduced, was not so much the pain of a bruised toe as spiritual anguish. His eyes glittered, his nose wiggled, and if he was not gnashing his teeth, I don't know a gnashed teeth when I hear one. Oh, he won't. He said, going back into the old cinnamon bear routine. He, He won't, won't he? Well, we'll see about that. Pop off, Bertie, I want to think. And I popped off, glad to do so. These displays of naked emotion take it out of me.